Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EVN Disrupt podcast. My name is Nishtat Zadurian. I'm the editor of the tech section here at EVN Report. My guest today was Adam Bitlingmeyer, the co-founder and CEO of Modelfront, a machine translation quality prediction company. We spoke about his early days on the Google Translate team, how machine translation has developed over the last 15 years, and how Modelfront informs translators of which pieces of a machine translated text to focus on in the post-editing process. At the end, we also spoke about the recent debates over AI accelerationism versus decelerationism. Thank you for listening. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Great to see you again. Um, let's start from the Google Translate days. I know you were one of the early members of the Google Translate team. Tell us when you were when you were working there and what translation looked like back then. So I joined Google right out of college in 2007. My goal, you know, just with a bachelor's degree, I was 22. And my goal was always to go to Google Translate. It sort of made a lot of sense. Um, I'm a, um, you know, language guy at heart. Polyglot. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you know, I think you're also a language guy. I know two. <laughs> doesn't compare to your six or seven, I think. <laughs> Eight. Eight, sorry. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I was a software engineer. I studied uh, computer science uh, in Seattle. And so, you know, totally made sense. Hey, you know, and this was 2007, right? And so, you know, I got there. I, I didn't uh, go to that team immediately. I was on uh, Android uh, fairly early on. And then by 2010, I had made it to, to Google Translate um, within... Google research. Mm-hmm. Back in 2007, I, I can't remember when Google Translate became a consumer product. Uh, was it released already in 07 or? So more or less what happened was um, you had rules-based systems going back to the 70s even, mm-hmm. uh, Sistran and so on. And if you if you remember, I think you're too young to remember, but there was something called Babelfish in the 90s. I do remember okay, Babelfish, okay. yeah. Um, that was what we all used. I remember my father saying, hey, come look at this, right? <laughs> And that was the rules-based era. And that roughly lasted, well, that, that was in force around the year 2000. And then by 2005, basically, these PhD products, uh, projects sorry, sort of coming out of the University of Aachen in Germany had jumped over to the West Coast and became the new way of doing translation, so t- statistical methods. Mm-hmm. So they learn from data. If you want to call it AI or not, you know, yeah. that, that's an open question. But right. that really started yeah, around 2005. Uh, 2000, uh, 2000 to 2005 was that transition. And Google Translate became like a publicly available product around then as well? Yeah, already by 2005, certainly. So by the time you graduated, you had already used right. it and you had Those, seen Google For Translate. me, you, you know, you, you look at me now, you say I was an early guy there, but for yeah. me, I was a late guy. I was the youngest guy on the team and these right. were the people who had made this revolution happen right right even going back a little bit further why why do you like languages so much why learn seven eight languages i it was definitely never a plan i'm extremely lazy um i have my way of learning um and and i don't spend a lot of effort and i think that i think anybody who really is good at something uh, whether it's soccer or whether it's you know business or whatever uh, learning languages Really, the trick is that they put in the work on the right things. So that's that's just how it is for me, that mm-hmm. that I don't put that much effort. I see people all the time when I see someone learning a language, they put way more effort than I have just to learn eight. They put more effort to, to learn one, and they still don't learn it. And the reason is because they're focusing on the wrong things, not because they they have you know lower brain capacity or something. So you had figured out like an optimal 80-20 of how to learn languages. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? So uh, you probably know about a Zipfian distribution, right? Uh-huh. So, right, you, you got a few most common words and, um, you know, then it, it 
drops off quickly after that, right? And invariably, you know, if you go to someone who's struggling with a language, maybe one, you know, that 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 I already speak fluently, and I and they're struggling to 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 get there, and you say, okay, uh, let's see, like, what did your teacher give you give you, or what is Duolingo having you do? And there's a bunch of words in there that I don't know. Now, how is it that you're spending time on these words when you don't have the basic fluency and conversational stuff, mm-hmm. you know, really nailed down, mm-hmm. right? And it's a false agenda. Hmm. And I remember there are a few more tricks, but like that's yeah. the main thing. I remember Tim Ferriss had this like list of sentences that he would learn when trying to learn any language. And it covered like the basic, right. the most frequently used, not only vocabulary, but phrases to get you by on stuff. And by learning that, you really like expedited the, the learning process of the rest. That, that's, that's a good one for sure. But I would say that you sort of inevitably, if you do that and you're starting from this one side, then you, you really want the, the, the frequency distribution in the target language. Hmm. So because it's different for each. Yeah, language. maybe if I given an Armenian example, right? If you take your English list and you translate it into all the languages, you're never going to get Savatanam because right. you know it. But if you're saying, okay, what would help me survive in the most situations? Well, that's a word that you can use all the time. Sure. It can mean anything, and you you'll, right. you know you've right. now avoided learning a bunch of other words, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, like sorry, I hit your car, or hey man, can I ask you something? It's all the same, right? right. And now you've you've just covered yeah. so much of daily life. I also find, um, like sometimes I see here in Armenia when, when they're teaching English, they teach these like overly formal, proper things that right. even as a native English speaker, I've never heard in my life. Right. Uh, and it shows you that like language learning maybe sometimes is so academic that it becomes impractical. Uh, right? That's, yeah. that's totally, that's yeah. another one, right? So it's all, it's all about the teacher and mm-hmm. his or her ego complexes yeah. and so on. Right. And not, you know, I mean... Soap operas and pop songs actually work really well, and and that may not make the teacher happy because mm-hmm. you know that's you know um, for the cultures I hold near and dear, yes, I'm yeah. not always happy what's going on in those spheres, right. but actually that is what what people need, what the students yeah. need, you know, yeah. to, to survive. Yeah, the practicality of it is sometimes missing. So let's get back to Google Translate. Um, so when you joined, it was the statistical methods revolution mm-hmm. was taking place. Um, what were you guys working on then past that? Were you, did you stick around for the deep learning phase or? I quit right before the deep learning phase. And you talk about like AI winters. I would say that in some sense, machine translation was in a winter, roughly 2012, 2013. And, and sort of the reason for why I call it that was like, okay, they had figured out this amazing sort of process for launching new languages. So I think one thing that Google and Microsoft have done very well is launch more languages, right? If you mm-hmm. if you look over the last 10 years, that's what they keep doing. Um, and then you got to have the parsers for all of them and all of this stuff, right? And there were sort of noises and feelings back then that, hey, this isn't scalable and we get there has to be something where this stuff is all just kind of learned. Mm-hmm. But, but that's sort of um, the state um, where it was. And we were very much focused on, let me call it delivery or distribution, right? Uh, me specifically, um, I was maintaining the Google Chrome, Google Translate integration, mm-hmm. right? And Chrome is also on Android, which was the team I'd come from. And, you know, at that time, again, when I joined Android, I don't know, how, maybe a few hundred thousand people or something or less using an Android phone. Right. Um, and right now you have 4 billion people using an Android phone. You have 6 billion people who don't understand English mm-hmm. on earth, right? Uh, most of them are now online, roughly 75% of the people on the internet, um, you know, don't understand English. They don't have a 
computer, like a desktop, they have an Android phone, right? They don't have an iPhone typically. And every time they, they run over a small, uh, sorry, run over a, um, a web page that's not in their language, this thing is just automatically translating mm-hmm. for them. And if you didn't have that, they basically wouldn't be able to understand 95 to 99% of the internet, depending right. on w- what their mother tongue is, because it's only for the very top languages that you even have 5% of the internet in that language. Yeah, yeah. English English speakers really don't see that uh, perspective because uh, we're used to just being able to get whatever information we want on the web through that, right? Exactly. It's it's a total blind spot, but we yeah. are basically in this elite, roughly 20% of the world. That of the internet English. users. Of the, internet. of the world, uh, it's even a bit smaller. Yeah, right. I think another interesting thing about Google Translate is, is for a lot of people, it was probably their first time using an AI product, even without knowing they were, it's not, it wasn't called AI back then, just right. Yes, yes. Right? But it was something we all used in like the late 2000s, early 2010s. Yeah, I, I like to say that if, if Google search uh, launched now instead of, you know, back when it did roughly around the year 2000, that it would be called AI, even sure. if it worked exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah. The definitions have gotten a little bit slimy over right, the years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. So, uh, the deep learning revolution came and people, we all at, at one point or another started seeing a significant improvement in, in how Google Translate worked. I remember there was this famous New York times article, uh, profiling the, the Google Translate team and, uh, the integration of deep learning systems into there. This was like 2015, 2016, probably yeah, 2016, yeah. 2016. Yeah. And, uh, then along came, uh, the idea for model front. Was that right? Or or did we miss a step in between? We probably missed a step. So, you know, even back in like 2012 or something, I was always very frustrated with the idea that we would serve up sometimes terrible translations. And you remember back then how it was, and it was very finicky. Right. And, and I said, we have to be able to tell the user that this is bad. Like this one is bad, right? You know, there's a lot that are subjective, maybe bad, but there's some of them were really bad back then. And I always compared it a little bit to Google search. So with a search, right, if you go just put some, some junk in there, it'll say, sorry, no results found. There's literally no page on the entire internet, out of billions of pages, there's no page that contains this string. Mm-hmm. And translation never tells you that. Machine translation never comes back and says, sorry, I can't translate that. It always gives something. Right? Whereas a human would, a human right. translator, right? And so this paradigm... Um, you know, I found suboptimal when I compared it to search engines, right? We were in a search company. We were in, at that point, we moved from Google Research to, to Google Search and we're in B43, right? Sitting below Larry and Sergey and search is all around you, right? And we're, you know, with this, you know, 15, 20 person team within search say, look, the other products are, they're giving you back 10 results and then you choose one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or if there's really no result and doesn't know what to do, it, it returns no result, right? And, um, you know, a search, for example, would do if you would say, I don't know, in Italian, um, uh, this was something pointed out to me by um, Jakob Uskreit, who then went on to invent the transformer. He said, look, uh, if you go to Google Images and you type like uh, Machina in mm-hmm. Russian or Machine in Persian, Mekina in Armenian, right? It shows you a picture of a car mm-hmm. by default. And if you go to Google Translate, right? And you type in that it was translating as machine, hmm. and then. it still is. Some some of these things, I, you know, I haven't looked today, but yeah. last time I checked, it was still like that, right? And so his point was, 
our systems know that our other systems, our image search system understands that most people in that language, when they say mach basically machine, they mean a car, right? right? right. Um, just like the word car for us doesn't mean a horse-drawn cart. It means right. a car. Yeah. And so um, there was definitely that sort of idea back then with me. And I did start working on some, some things around quality, basically mm -hmm. saying, okay, can we say when we have you know, done this sort of total fail mm -hmm. or, or very likely made, made it a wrong translation. Yeah. Translation kind of got a pass because it was, it was still perceived to be so far out of the, like Strong's translation were, was perceived to be so far out of the capabilities of computers that they were like, well, you know, it's a, it's a computer. It's doing the best it can kind of, right? Yeah. There's also a lot of, um, I'd say fundamentally blind spots. So those of us who speak English, we don't really need right. this thing. And it's all about it's all most of the, the traffic in the consumer world is going um, in the other direction. And a lot of us, we just kind of look at it. And, oh, look, Chinese characters. It translated. Right. Right. Oh, Russian characters. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and we don't really um, actually have to have to use these things very much. Right. I, I was, um, you know, recently uh, working with my daughter. She's seven um, uh, on, on learning to program. And you go to something like code.org and the translations are, you know, machine translation and it's, it's really unusable. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that you can understand the translation is because, you know, it's only really accessible for a kid whose father is a programmer and used to work at Google translate, which is the, you know, the system that it was yeah. translated with and, you know, knows what the English probably was that right. caused this terrible translation. Right, right? Right, right, yeah. But for most kids, that means effectively code.org is not accessible. Right. Right. Most kids on earth. Right. And they can't learn to program. When you scale that to the amount of people that would want to use the, any platform, not just right, go to right. work, it's a massive, massive problem. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Why wasn't quality prediction and things like that built into Google Translate earlier? Why wasn't it a priority? Right. right. It was an interesting not question. Not just Google Translate, right? Big yeah, companies yeah. in general. Very interesting question. I came to the conclusion, actually, that, so if you look at what we do, we basically work with large companies that have been, you know, translating millions of lines of their own content. And the way they do it is they first machine translate and then they um, have humans look at, you know, professionals really look at every single line and they change some of them and they don't change others. And if you go back, like this started actually in the year 2000, uh, the, is the f earliest I've heard of it, probably before, but uh, Sun Microsystems in the Valley was using this method of translation back in the year 2000 or so, 2002 maybe. Mm -hmm. And this became the standard over, you know, the 2010s basically, and definitely with the, the transformer and neural machine translation 2015, 2016, 2017, it accelerated. And so my view was, my view is that once a large chunk of those translations are perfect, that's, you know, it used to be 20%. Now I, I kind of see an industry average of like 50%, but once it's 80 or 90%, just simply insane. It's unsustainable that we send something off to an agency or off to a professional translator and he or she wastes 90% of his time looking at things that don't need to be looked at. Right. right. And so that's the main driver. So did AI get maybe easier to build? Yes. Right. But I think the value drives everything. And even if AI were not easy to build, if you have enough value there, then, you know, we technologists, we builders will find a way 
So that's, in my view, yeah. it's the number of good translations. Whereas if you had had a quality score in like 2010 for a professional high value bit of content, you would have had to simply say every sentence is bad. Right. And that's not very interesting. Right. It's also not in the interest of the translation as, uh, software providers, I guess. Maybe the, there was just no value there. There's a, you know, there's a question about what's in their interest too, but, but I think m maybe the question isn't why they didn't do it, but like why somebody else didn't right. do it. And the reason somebody else didn't do it, uh, you know, so what the early research on this back in that era, um, was actually used for the opposite thing, which is, um, when should I give the translator the machine translation to edit from versus just have it be empty because the machine translation is so bad mm. that they're better off writing from scratch. Mm. Interesting. Right. But that's much less valuable. Right, right. So we just got to a point where AI was good enough where it's so where it's now worth it and applicable to use right, for right. large scale translation services. Though I would say, you know, I was having a conversation last night with, with a tech company, security company, and you know, you go look and well, it's still not performing that great for them. I would say the biggest bottleneck for me. And you know, there you kind of have to say sorry, like maybe go customize this or go fix this or that and then we'll actually be able to provide a lot of value for you so i would say still this is the bottleneck that there aren't that many good translations to approve for all sorts of high value content that many good translations meaning that the translation provided by the ai system is just too weak and requires too much work uh, yeah so my my way of viewing this is like does this sentence require any change or not Mm -hmm. Very simple, Just very binary. binary. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the workflow for Modelfront. Mm -hmm. um, walk us through how somebody uses Modelfront to accelerate the process of translation. So if you look in how a um, how this process, this translation workflow is done today, right? This is basically what we're talking about is like the first workflow to adopt sort of uh, AI for text generation, right? Mm -hmm. Their uh, workflow is the following. They first um, get the, the document, then they have what's called the translation memory, something from the 90s. It goes and looks, hey, were any of these sentences already translated before? Mm. If so, just use that old translation. Okay, that's interesting. That's something you guys have internally? No, it's something that they have internally, that our customers ah, okay. have internally, right? And then they and they have had that for for 10 or 20 years and then they machine translate so the system gets the machine translations and inserts those mm -hmm. and previously then um the linguist the translators would go to work mm -hmm. right? and now with model front after that machine translation step there's sort of another step very analogous to that translation memory step which again looks for segments that are already perfect and don't require um you know further Analysis. editing or looking yeah. at. And so what a translator receives then, just like before, is they're receiving whole documents, um, but many of the sentences are already done. Mm -hmm. They're there for context, but they can basically skip those and uh, go to those that need work and just look up and down for context mm. if, if they need it. So it's just, inc it's not really changing anything for them, um, except that the number of those um, has increased Mm -hmm. On average, the number of, of context segments has increased relative to, to the amount of work. So it filters down the parts of the text that need a human eye to, right. to look at. Right. And the system is reliable enough that the parts where you don't need a human eye to look at, they trust that we can just accept this as it is kind of thing. I would say they don't trust. Yeah. They test. 
Right. And then they see that that's the case. Hmm. So yeah, nobody trusts us right. because, and they shouldn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this part of the process is called, is called post-editing. Right. This workflow is generally right. referred to as, as post-editing. Post -editing. Yeah. Yeah. How much time does that save using model friend? So it's really driven by the number of translations that are perfect, right? So, you know, if 20% of the translations are perfect, then we can save a good chunk right. of that. So that ends up being like 10% of the total. Now mm -hmm. that's not that exciting, right? But there are other cases where 90% are being, uh, you know, used as is, and then, yeah, you can save mm -hmm. 80%, right? And there are other types of, of um, documents where it's even higher, 95, 99%, right? And there you can get nearly 90% um, can be approved as mm -hmm. is with, with no perceptible drop in quality. Mm -hmm. are you, and what, how many language pairs does this work for? So that, that goes back to this thing about, you know, what, what um, technology may be enabled versus, versus demand. We really started at a time when it became possible to do everything for the top 100 languages. Mm -hmm. And so we, we built things from day one to fully support the top 100 languages, including Armenian, of course, and all um, language pairs, so 10,000 combinations. Mm -hmm. In this case, does the language pairing particularly important or could systems be developed that just catch bad language? Um, well, I guess in the context of language, now that I think in translation specifically, there could just be a literal bad translation, whereas the, the text that's outputted mm -hmm. isn't grammatically correct, but it's an incorrect translation of what the original meaning right. was. Right? So, the, so you have in translation, um, and, and I think you can apply this to, to let's say, ChatGPT as well. You always had these two dimensions of quality, which are fluency and accuracy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can catch some disfluencies, which just only looking at the target or only looking at the source, you can yeah. catch disfluencies. But then accuracy, you really have to look at both the, the source and the translation. Mm -hmm. Right, right. How, um, how applicable is this tech to other forms of um, AI generated or AI automated uh, context. For example, like you have that problem with code generation too, right? Um, I tell ChatGPT to write me this project. I need to go sit down and like manually review it. It's a little bit easier than human than translation because I can write tests and stuff to cat stuff, um, but I still need to manually look at it. So is this text maybe applicable to other spaces of AI as well? Right, I think basically translation already has all, you know, it has these translation management systems, it's chunking everything into segments. You have, you know, um, 3,000 translation agencies doing more than a million dollars a year, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, you have this whole ecosystem, you have a price per word payment model and everything. And so, yeah, you can kind of look to translation and see what'll happen in these other spaces. Um, they may they may be different for for various reasons, but yeah, I think ultimately as a, as a programmer myself, yes, if I get some code that I have to look at, I'd much rather if somebody could point out to me the parts that they were not sure about right. and leave the boring the boring parts out, right? Um, so I think I think that'll ultimately happen, um, but I think probably the closest analogy to translation would simply be speech recognition. So like transcribing this interview, it's exactly the same workflow mm. first you have you know these um these these transcriptions it always messes up on you know the most interesting words because they're the yeah. ones that are sort of break the language model and then somebody has to go you know listen through an hour to go fix maybe 10 key points mm -hmm. right but they're they're important 
Yeah, that's um, a good example. So, so it, it, that's the most similar. And then speech to speech translation is a sort of um, blend of those two. Mm -hmm. So those ones are very obvious, but I think all of these areas that are emerging now with the sort of horizontal spread of transformer-based models, um, there will be more uh, good opportunities for this. But as it currently stands, I would say that in some sense, the ecosystems don't exist yet to, to, to do it. Like you couldn't go do it today because they actually don't have the data. They don't have these workflows set up. Right. Right. Even for code? Code is one of the one that evolves fast. We programmers yeah. are very spoiled, so we always yeah. get shiny stuff first because we kind of demand it. With code, I guess, like, I feel like the way most people are using AI for code generation is still something like Copilot, mm -hmm. which is much more akin to kind of an autocomplete, which makes it easier to manually inspect because mm -hmm. you do it in small chunks and you're totally controlling the workflow. Whereas with GPT, if you're just telling it to write something from scratch, then you're going to have more problems. But yeah, I imagine something's something's cooking in that space. For right, sure. right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the fact that it has the whole context of the program that this person is working on yeah. really helps. And yes, exactly. that should be, it makes sense to use yeah. that. And code is much more of a controlled space than human language, right? Than translation. I would agree. Yeah, yeah it's an easier problem in some sense. What about just for like nat general natural language generation, like uh, people using it to write articles and, and things like that? Yeah. yeah, to me, it makes sense um, that, um, in, you know, in, in every article you have, um, you have basically the, you know, parts that are pretty non-controversial and then mm -hmm. the parts where, hey, th this is the one I'd like the editor's input on, right? right? Yeah. yeah. And based on the in so input. So it really, I think, depends on how you generated yeah. um, the article. Yeah, but going back to your point, still doesn't compare to the volume that uh, translation uh, competes with. Because just from a from a perspective, like an article might be fifteen hundred, two thousand words if it's long, whereas translation might be pages and pages and pages. I think it's hard to say. There's there's a lot of content that's written. Most of it doesn't get translated. When it does get translated, though, it's often mm -hmm. being translated into ten or a hundred languages. Right. So yeah. I, I'd I'd say content writing is a is a pretty um, this is a pretty high volume. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's speak a little bit more about um, some of the advancements we've seen in uh, machine translation in general. Um, to be honest, lately, it seems like maybe like 2019, 2018 era, a lot of the research that would get published would get benchmarked on translation tasks. Um, it was a really popular mm -hmm. uh, space in research. Now more and more we're seeing um, like big model launches and stuff getting more of the attention. Where is the state of machine translation now? What are some exciting things that have happened over the, the last couple of years? Okay. Yeah. So I think that um, quality prediction was obviously, you know, what we do was, was a big one because it sort of allows buyers with high value content to finally take advantage of the advances, whereas mm -hmm. before they really weren't getting any, you know, benefit. Um, but the other thing that I think is interesting is kind of this idea of like adaptive, um, adaptive translation, what's called adaptive machine translation. And this is something that, um, you know, GPT model makes much easier, which is, Hey, I'd really like my translation, uh, you know, that, that's generated by AI to be informed by the previous segment you know, what, how I translated the line before it, maybe an image, all of these things should be inputs. And like I was saying with search, the technology to do this was always there, but now it became, you know, not easy to build, but easier mm -hmm. to build. And so to me, I mean, to me, it's just ridiculous, right? You, you go to, um, you know, translate.google.com 
and um, and I'm, I'm you know it's still it is really one of the best for the most languages and so on. So I'm nothing against Google, right? Um, but you, you know you go there and you type you know Palo Alto, and it translates as Palo Alto, and you type you know Mountain View, and it says Vista de la Montaña, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like in that context, you can't tell me we don't have AI that. That knows that, yeah. that, you know, that's not how to translate. So those, those kind of things are, are going to change. To be honest, I'm, I'm often too early. So I thought like 2015, I'm like, surely they're going to fix this. 2018, surely they're going to yeah. fix this. And like now it's going to be pretty damn embarrassing if they don't. Because, yeah. you know, peop, for people, the new baseline became ChatGPT. Right. And ChatGPT doesn't do that. Right, right. How how much have these foundation models been integrated into translation uh, systems? I can't say yeah. because I'm not inside, not and, and if I knew something, I wouldn't be allowed to say it. But I think that's something you can depend on, right? Which is those teams are are very optimized for the translation task, and as soon as something makes sense with a little bit of lag, because it has to be at a massive scale, they will incorporate those things. So mm-hmm. I I think it's fair to say that. Microsoft, Google, and so on are all working on it. But so, sometimes, like you mentioned, um, you know, if you give GPT some translation task, it'll do it better than Google Translate. Right. Um, and Google has foundation models that can compete with the, right. the large right, right. with GPT four and stuff. The question arises: Why haven't they already um, implemented? For some cases, like uh, we we don't know what they have or haven't done, but it's right. just some of the quality is so right, poor right, that right, it right. seems obvious that they haven't. Is it largely a cost thing? Like, is it is the inference that they would have to run on it just too costly that they would? There's that. There, there is cost, but there's also just engineering. So, just imagine the scale that Google Translate runs at, right? Mm-hmm. So that every time somebody anywhere in the world yeah. opens his or her phone in a language, in, in, yeah. you know, uh, in a, on a page, and that's in a language he or she doesn't understand, yeah. which is most of the pages, this thing fires, right? Yeah. So they have to think about the costs. If you told somebody at Google or Microsoft, hey, this will hurt quality 5%, but it's going to um, cut costs by 50%, they'd say, sounds like a good trade to yeah. me. Yeah. I mean, OpenAI has 100 million monthly, ac- weekly active users. So now scale that, and they have huge uh, right. issues with like uh, server load and stuff. Uh, scale right, that to google right. scale and right and i understand google, why they won't do it again f- roughly four billion people that's, you know have an android phone and and can't yeah. understand english that's quite a big yeah. uh, jump from 100 yeah. million yeah it'd be nice to have like a paid tier though uh like a a, a google translate plus or something that's sure sure yeah. sure <laughs> i'm sure they're working on it i'm sure uh, they i are, think yeah. uh, you know you listened to a recent um talk at I, I just spoke at the um american machine uh, association for the machine translation in america's mm-hmm. Um, and, and the keynote was from Christian Federman at Microsoft, and he was very open yeah. about the fact that, that they're doing this. And when a paradigm shift like this comes mm-hmm. along, then you know the, it reaches a point where even if it's doing worse today, it makes sense for them to invest in it. And um, yeah, for sure. I can't remember if he said exactly, but you can understand that, they're, that they've reached that point for this and they're working on it. Yeah, for sure. Let's speak a little bit about um, sort of lower resource languages. Um, I know there's been some work done recently to... Um, improve the quality of uh, lower pair data sets that have um, less language pairs in them. So Armenian to English translation or English to German, et cetera, and get higher quality results than in the past. Can you tell us just where we're at with that and what to expect? I would say that what we typically thought of as low resource languages are not really low resource languages anymore. So for example, like Chinese, not a low resource language, right? Was it ever? 
it, it was almost put in that bucket because it was it was exotic and so you had mm. to have different parsers and you had poor support for okay. a lot of stuff right japanese chinese and so on and we still get those questions all the time like does it support those languages right because people don't understand fairly from experience that these days it's the, the amount of data that matters and the 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 characters don't right. matter, right? Right. Then another bucket, I would put something like Armenian. I would put that actually in the mid-resource bucket. And the reason Armenian, um, were, you know, it's Wikipedia number 30, right? So you see a similar thing with like Catalan or something, right? Where, you know, with a lot of work, you can actually make your language to be more present on the internet. And um, where I always noticed the huge lag was when the language itself was not poorly, was not well defined. Mm -hmm. So Armenian is pretty nicely defined. Of course, you have the two types. Basically, if you see something in the Armenian script, it's Armenian. Right. Right. It's not like um, Cyrillic. Or it's something. not like Cyrillic. Cyrillic it's not yeah. like the Arabic alphabet or something like that. Right. And I think the contrasting case would always be Kurdish. Right. So I'm going to say, you know, 30 million speakers or, or something on, on that or order. magnitude, but it's split between these different, it's actually not a language, it's a few languages. Mm -hmm. They're quite different from each other. Then they're using um, really three different alphabets, Arabic uh, alphabet, Latin alphabet, and then also um, uh, Cyrillic, in, mm -hmm. for example, here in Armenia, you go to a, a Yezidi village and it's, it's in Cyrillic, mm -hmm. right? So that really held them back because you know, somebody at Microsoft or Google, or, you know, it doesn't have to be for translation, but it could be for like, you know, um, Bert or, um, you know, Lama or whatever. They go look at this and they say, okay, can we add this language? Nope. And they throw up their hands, right? right. Because it's too complicated. Right. Um, so that those languages um, got held back, I would say. Um, what about in terms of uh, like how those language pairs are, or um, languages that in the past have had uh, struggles with mm -hmm. like just not enough data to get high quality machine translation on it. How's, so, how's the quality of that been improved? Yeah, I think uh, one way to look at it, um, and I'm, I'm also uh, the founder of the Machine Translate Foundation, and we had um, a, a meetup on low resource languages, and um, the fellow heading... Um, research at Facebook, which I think Facebook's probably ahead on the low resource languages, right? Because they're, because of the thing, you know, the way that they use machine translation. Um, the fellow who has it is Paco Guzman. And I asked him there, you know, if you take a low resource language today, is it better than a high resource pair like English to Spanish in, let's say, 2010? And mm -hmm. he said, absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that that makes sense to me. Yeah. Right? So they're they're better they're better than the the, the high resource languages were mm -hmm. ten years ago. That's an interesting comparison. Um, while we're on the subject of research, is the work that Modelfront is doing these systems that you guys are building could it be aided in um, improving uh, just the actual fundamental models that we deploy for machine translation? It could be. I think having something that says if a translation is good or bad is fundamentally very useful for training a better machine translation. You you know about generator discriminator models mm -hmm. and so on. But the most interesting thing I think is about having more content in those languages. So most of the languages have almost nothing. And, you know, I just take something like, I don't know, some talk with Mark Andreessen or some news clip 
from from yesterday or yeah. any, you know all sorts of high value content you don't have it in german or spanish let yeah. alone armenian let alone kurdish, kurdish right yeah. so really quality prediction like the work we're doing at modelfront is what's finally allowing a much higher volume of things to be translated because at quality mm-hmm. which right? is important right? so basically at google a small part of a, of an effort that ultimately made bad translation free for most of humanity most of humanity now has an Android phone. And at Modelfront, we're making good translation, not free, but radically more efficient. Right. And which ultimately results in the, the distributors and creators of that content translating more of it at high quality. Whereas today, they just can't uh, you know, afford to in many cases. And then the creators of machine translation models can take that data and train their, improve their models with it so that uh, it's like a loop. <laughs> That's a tricky thing. Um, we already had the problem going back 20, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that the internet was polluted with all sorts of stuff. And so that was a problem for translation back then. And actually one of the things that Google became very good at was like detecting at least their own machine translations out there on the internet and avoiding training on them. And now we're going to have that problem, not just with translation, but with content in general. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, all this AI generated content is going to be out there. So um, I'm not, I don't necessarily have a solution for that, but I actually think that's, that's creating a, a ceiling that maybe people don't understand where, again, if you look at translation, we hit this problem more than 10 years ago, and now folks are going to very soon hit this problem with something like GBT, where training on the internet all of a sudden isn't the best idea anymore. Because the quality of the data has... You're basically ingesting your own model output. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, a lot of interesting work to be done and a lot of opportunities and creating like really strong data engines, like synthetic data generation systems that produce really high quality data for training these models. Um, so like, actually, like surprisingly, like Microsoft is uh, really running away with, with that space, it seems. Um, and it seems like we might, uh, there's some, some stuff in the news about maybe there, there'll be a breakthrough we'll, we'll know about soon uh, on that front. Um, but on that to- on that topic, um, I can't let you go without asking about all the crazy things that happened over the last week or ten days, uh, two weeks now, I guess. We're recording this at the end of November. Uh, we just had a big um, sort of boardroom battle uh, at OpenAI, the most mm-hmm. arguably the most important AI company in the world. Um, and we don't know all the details, but it seems like the core of it was this accelerationist versus de- decelerationist uh, sides of. AI progress, uh, one side advocating for taking a pause, maybe stopping certain research directions, and the other side uh, being a bit more aggressive. Where do you fall on this? Well, if I look at it from the translation perspective, I mean, you know, we build these models and we understand these models, and I'm not worried about it, right? It is fundamentally a tool, it's a technology, it's based on mathematics and so on. As I said, our mission is to have more content in more languages for more people. Right. To me, it's a sort of like typical thing. You have, you know, six billion people around the world who don't understand English and they don't really have a voice in mm-hmm. this conversation. They would like that their kids can learn programming like your kid can and all of these things, right? And then you have somebody in a country that thanks to lots of hard work and technological advances and so on, became wealthy uh, to the point that there are a lot of people with luxury beliefs out there who want to like sort of freeze everything, um, right? And they don't care that there's another 6 billion people on earth who who don't have access to to the same things they do, right? And so, yeah, to me, I mean, anyone who sort of 
lived in uh, next to socialism, under socialism, or in a post-socialism society understands how damaging that is and has no nostalgia or illusions about sort of um, stopping progress. And the other thing, of course, is that, you know, you can, even if, let's say, rogue folks inside the inside the US, inside Silicon Valley, inside the OpenAI board, managed to kill this one company, competitors to the West are not going to slow down. Right. This is going to be like nuclear power, right? Where, you know, the West sort of scares itself into shutting things off. And meanwhile, you know, go look at where um, the, the next 100 power plants are being built, you know, right. and they're not in countries that love America. Right. Right. It's a good, it's a good, interesting. Or Armenia. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of making sure that things move forward, I think this one boardroom, as important of a company as OpenAI is, this one boardroom battle wouldn't have slowed down the uh, development of AI, anyways, even in the US. Um, how do you look at um, the sort of open source versus closed models debate? Um, do you think we'll get to a point where? most companies will adopt sort of the meta philosophy of um, the way forward is having open models uh, be released and then you just serve those up as um, as endpoints to, to run their business or do you think we'll continue in this way of of closed source do you think there's a there's going to be a winner that emerges uh, between those because the the open source models are still quite behind the the closed source ones I would say maybe that's already happened to some degree or that we're sort of at this 50-50 thing, and there will always be a tension between closed source and open source. I think what people probably generally don't appreciate, you know, take machine translation, Google has basically been open sourcing everything, you know, continuously since neural machine translation. The core algorithmic part, right? Barrett but was open source. Publishing and, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in a GitHub repo right. and so on. The sec to sec, right? It's It's all there. I think the thing that people don't appreciate around any type of production system at scale is, you know, all the stuff around the data and um, the data cleaning and the inference and so on. And uh, having a team carrying pager, right? These are processes almost, um, mm -hmm. institutions, and that is hard to, to share outside. And so um, in some sense, in some sense, it has happened that that the models are shared, but it doesn't mean you can go clone these systems because right. what makes a system run involves a lot of other know-how, yeah, and resources. Resources also, yeah, right. And I mean, you would you would not want to run your own Google Translate, right? You're never going to do it cheaper than they can do it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. And let alone building it from scratch. So you yeah. have to have some other reason, whether it's security or customization to run your own machine translation right, system right. locally. Adam, last question. Um, where do you hope to see Modelfront in five years? So I hope that in more or less we're, we're sort of the Google Translate of quality prediction, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, people can can love to hate us, so to speak, but they use us. <laughs> um, but it becomes something that's very available, accessible, and that we make translation um, ultimately work way more efficiently, that we accelerate this task. Mm -hmm. Um, the jobs are not going to go away. There's just infinite content to translate and um, lots of demand uh, from the other side, right? And so really hope to to lead this wave as we have been so far. Yeah. Wish you a lot of luck with that. And I hope you'll come back to, to share the story of how it goes. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Appreciate it.